0: The Akad and Coca Report, episode number 47. Welcome to the Akkad and Coca Report, the podcast dedicated to making sense of healthcare, from policy to economics, from evidence based medicine to ethics. Join us as Drs. Michelle Akkad and Anish Coca diagnose and treat the latest epidemic of healthcare absurdities. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us on this episode of the Akkad and Coca Report. Before we get started, a quick re- request. We have managed to produce more than 40 episodes of the Akkad and Coca report by now and have wasted countless hours of your productive time, but we would like to do it better. We need your feedback about what we're doing right and what we're doing wrong, etc. So please drop a comment either on iTunes, uh, on the show notes, or on our Facebook page, all of which you can access at akkadandcoca.com. So today we are pleased to have as our guest a physician, who is also a mathematician, an inventor, and a philosopher committed to bringing better ideas to the world of pharmacology. And despite his technical and computational inclinations, our guest's ideas are meant not to mindlessly treat patients like numbers, but on the contrary, to focus clinical research on the individual person at hand. His consulting firm is Precision Methodologies, and its tagline is, One Size Does Not Fit All. (laughs) <laughs> David Norris, welcome to the show.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Michelle. Good to be with you, and Anish.
0: Yes, we're delighted to have you. Uh, David, I'm, I want to set the stage uh, for what we're going to talk about um, as best as I can uh, for the audience, uh, the way I understand it. So drugs are being uh, tested and approved on the basis of a certain testing protocol. Mm-hmm. You think that testing protocol is not that good and you have a better idea. Uh, Is that is that the gist of it? Sure, that's a that's a great start. All right. Okay, (laughs) so describe to us what is this what the standard testing protocol and, and perhaps we should say that we should focus on oncology drugs, cancer drugs as opposed to other drugs or is it the same for everything?
1: Yeah, so you know that's that's actually a great way to begin why this focus on oncology in particular. So the the this practice of one size fits all dose finding, which occurs in phase one trials of our phase one two three drug development process, uh, is uh, uh, you know it's it's ubiquitous and and it's it's done uh, for for many drugs. Uh, The reason that I've focused on this practice in oncology specifically uh, is that the phase one trial in in oncology has some special. Uh, ethical characteristics uh, that, uh, that make, uh, well, you know, that first of all, um, uh, well, that, 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 uh, that lend themselves to a uh, dose individualization perspective. Uh, so, okay. th- the, yeah, I mean, maybe, what, perhaps I could start by just sort of telling the story of how I stumbled on uh, dose individualization as a problem. Uh, I think that's sure, that's sure. But but uh, at some it.
0: point, I want to I want to make sure you describe what the current dose, uh, uh, dosing protocol or is. Yeah. So you want to do this? Uh, you know, either way, either now or after you, you describe how you, you stumble. Sure. Yeah. But, but
2: yeah. Know, Go ahead and tell us tell us how uh, you know. Right now, what's the process to? Uh, great. Yeah, that's where
1: we start. Going. So, uh, uh, in our drug development process, we we have typically it's described as three phases: phase one, phase two, and phase three. Uh, these phase three trials are, are the so-called registration trials that they're the ones you typically hear about uh, in the media, because these are the trials that uh, you know, typically uh, lead to a, uh, a registration. The, the FDA or other regulatory authorities use these phase three trials to uh, to designate drugs as a marketable. Uh, and it's the phase three trial that, that really is, is usually stands as the barrier between an experimental therapy and a marketed therapy. Uh, preceding those phase three trials, though, are some preliminary work. And as you can imagine, one of the first things you'd like to do as you are uh, investigating a drug is find out what doses are, are appropriate. Uh, and this is, this is in fact the, what's done in, in these phase one trials where the aim is to find, um, and unfortunately now, a single dose that is supposed to carry forward uh, into the phase two, uh, and this is called the recommended phase two dose. And then in the phase two trials, you begin looking, typically, for signals of uh, efficacy of the drug uh, after you've found a, a level that, um, uh, that is, uh, uh, you know, in a phase one trial that is tolerable.
0: Okay, so phase one trial, you try to identify the dose that you know, uh, the highest dose possible that doesn't have, you know, terrible side effects, you know, something like that. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And then phase two trial, you test that a little bit uh, longer or on more people to see what kind of problem you get into and what kind of, uh, and if you have a signal of efficacy, is that roughly? And
2: and in the phase one uh, trials, typically how many patients are in phase one trials that you're trying to find? Yeah. You're you're looking for uh, safety and lethality and whatnot. Or yeah. So
1: often we're talking about dozens of patients. Okay. Uh, you know, you're talking about two dozen uh, patients or or more uh, in a, in a typical phase one trial.
2: Okay. And, and in that in that, uh, do, do, do do all those patients get the same dose?
1: Ah. So. Uh, uh, Typically, what's done is uh, a dose escalation procedure is, is carried out. And here's how that works. Uh, you decide before you do the, the study that there is some range of doses that you want to um, that you want to explore. And uh, you know, they go from a low dose that you think is probably pretty safe. Uh, and uh, that would be the the first dose that's given to a a human, possibly. These are called first in human trials. Uh, And then you'd have a series of escalating doses uh, up to some maximum that you think you might want to uh, trial. And typically what you do is you enroll a few patients in a cohort uh, who receive that lowest dose. And provided that there are a few uh, uh, adverse effects, you might then enroll another group of patients in the next higher dose. Okay. And you continue in this way, of dosing the drug, assessing uh, adverse effects, uh, and and escalating uh, as uh, as indicated by the you know by the toxicity assessment.
0: So, w- what in this protocol is uh, mandated by the FDA, and what is you know sort of um, tradition or, or habits that pharmaceutical companies have of doing things?
1: Yeah, I think. Uh, you know as far as what is mandated by the FDA uh i i think that uh uh i think that uh, little about this process is constrained by uh by current uh mandates i mean certainly there are some examples of innovative truly innovative phase 1 trials that depart from that pattern i think that uh, by and large the the uh, these escalation procedures that I am criticizing uh, arise more from uh, uh, more from the uh, the tradition uh, okay. Than, than, okay than because they are demanded uh, on a regulatory basis
0: all right, all right and so uh, at the end of that process, there is typically a single dose that is then agreed upon by the investigators. And that will move forward into the subsequent phases.
1: Typically, yeah, yeah. Uh, and you know, uh, some some years ago, uh, a term like dose ranging was used, and uh, there was some you know some thinking and some hope. And really, I'm talking about the, the 1990s uh, that uh, one might preserve uh, a dose range to carry forward for, for further refinement. But I think that that is uh, you know that's just typically not done anymore. And and really, the, the target almost always. Is a single recommended phase two dose.
0: Okay. So, how did you stumble on this, uh, this opportunity for you? This uh, opportunity um, to to improve things.
1: Yeah. So, uh, you know, it turns out that uh, back in 2015 or so, uh, most of my consulting was actually uh, late phase stuff: pharmacoepidemiology, pharmacoeconomics, and uh, I just happened to, at a um, uh, I happened to be attending a, a Bayesian um, uh, uh, you know, a, a Bayesian conference in, uh, um, in 2015 in, in uh, Switzerland, where there was a, a short course that was taught uh, before the, the conference opened on dose finding. And having, back in, in uh, medical school, actually done a little bit of research about a dose titration for tacrolimus uh, in the immediate uh, post-transplant stage after kidney transplant, well, I uh, you know, I thought, oh gosh, uh, you know, dose-finding, that sounds like something I've done before, I, this sounds interesting. And, that's, and I discovered, really to my shock, that despite the fact that this was a Bayesian approach, right, and Bayesianism is, uh, with its learn-as-you-go spirit, uh, seems to me you know, ideally adapted to uh, learning and adjusting your, uh, your notion of dose, also, uh, also well adapted to dose individualization, which is of course what you would expect. Uh, you know, coming at this from an MD's perspective. And nevertheless, uh, the the although the methods were u- that were used were technically Bayesian, uh, the underlying spirit was very much frequentist. And the the target dose was actually defined by a target toxicity level. The aim was to find a dose that causes an intolerable toxicity in some given fraction of uh, the the patients who received the drug, you know, one third or or twenty five percent. So this was you know really quite jarring to me. And when I had an opportunity later that same year to attend uh, another short course on dose finding at uh, the JSM, you know, the annual joint statistical meetings, um, I took that as well. And here again, uh, I was faced with this same shock that um, that and here now there was even a pharmacometrics kind of uh, perspective present in in the work that was presented there uh, and you know, pharmacometricians these are the these are the, the pharmacologists who are keen on models and not afraid to model uh, you know, compartmental uh pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics of drugs nevertheless even with that attitude that should have admitted model-based thinking right which again i, I uh, to my intuition would have been essential to individualizing dose uh, nevertheless the same procedure uh, even though it was technically quite different, the, the same uh, over, overarching process was undertaken where you attempt to find uh, a single dose that will cause, a, you know again, an intolerable toxicity in some given fraction of patients. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. So having seen this twice, uh, uh, I, um, I was still quite shocked. And it took me about a year of further research to uh, really admit to myself that, that things were as bad as I thought they were. Uh, and that and that this truly was a ubiquitous practice. Um, I then used the, the 2016 JSM conference to verify that in fact nobody was doing dose individualization in of
0: JSM G- is oh that's the Joint Statistical Meetings, which is the okay.
1: big annual meeting of um, of statisticians in uh, you know in the United States every year.
0: All right, very good.
1: Yeah, and so at that point, uh, you know, starting from uh, starting from JSM 2016. I began working on this problem, published my first paper uh, early in 2017 and I've continued to roll out a, a series of uh, different uh, dimensional uh, outlooks on the problem.
0: Uh, that sounds great. So tell us what, uh, I mean, you have a finished product now, um, pretty much yeah. or
1: yeah, very much. So, so the, um, the the, the framework that, I, that I'm advocating here uh, as a solution to this problem is called dose titration algorithm tuning or DTAT. Okay. Uh, and it, it works basically like this. Uh, it, um, it replaces dose finding, you know, the process of finding a single dose with uh, the process of learning, not finding, a dose titration algorithm. That is what you, what you need to learn is how do I titrate this drug to a, an appropriate level Uh, for for a given patient, all right? So uh, 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 methodologically, uh, in terms of of the the technique, uh, you're you're using something that is at least inspired by uh, recursive filtering, which is an idea from statistics. Uh, Most people know it, uh, uh, are familiar with it through the Kalman filter. Um, It's an idea from statistics that's very Bayesian in spirit. Uh, you start with a, a guess about the initial dose uh, and you give that dose uh, and you, you you check for a toxicity and then you adjust the dose based on a model that you have uh, of, uh, of the pharmacology and the pharmacodynamics and the, the, um, and the, the toxicity, um, the dose toxicity curve. Uh, and, and, you re- and you repeat this recursive. And it's, of course, a process that's familiar to any, uh, any physician who has, uh, you know, uh, started a, a new diabetic on uh, on metformin and then maybe uh, accelerated or um, intensified uh, therapy through a, a number of uh, other drugs or you know again for you you cardiologists uh the uh, treating a patient for hypertension is very much the same sort of uh, process, right? You start right. with a low dose, and in order to avoid the, you know, orthostatic hypertension and the falls, right? Uh, and and you you follow up the 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 clinical um, the findings, you know, the blood pressure in the office, and you modify the 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 dose as time goes on.
0: Right. So presumably, your protocol then would um, would stay with the the subject if we're still in the trials phases. Mm-hmm. And then go on. If the subject goes on to subsequent phases, right? Or, or what? What happens if you if you design this on a given person participating in a phase one trial, mm-hmm. right? Then you, you've um, found the, the the dose for that particular subject. Then presumably you would use the same protocol in a phase two trial. If for other subjects who enroll in phase two and phase t- phase phase three trials, so that each Patient in that trial will have a specific dose given to them. Is that, is that the idea?
1: Yes, very much so. And But here's where the, the final T of DTAT comes in. It's the, the idea of tuning. Uh, so, uh, you know, the Kalman filter, when it was introduced in the 1960s, was first used, actually, as a means to, uh, it went into, uh, it, it went, it became, you know, it, it's one of the most important pieces of applied mathematics from the 20th century. Uh, you know, it, it stands on par with the, the fast Fourier transform. In terms of its importance, and it it found application almost immediately in navigating the circumlunar motions, uh, uh, um, the circumlunar missions around the moon. And everybody's got a GPS device in his car; is familiar with the Kalman filter. It keeps track of your current position and velocity, and predicts where you're going to be in one second from now. And it predicts what kind of signals it's going to receive from the GPS satellites. When it gets those signals, compares what it predicted they would be with what they actually were. And notes its error and feeds that error back into its current estimate of your velocity and position, and it does this recursively. Uh, now, a Kalman filter can be tuned depending on how bumpy the road is, how how weak the signals are from the satellites. Uh, if you're using it for uh, for controlling a vehicle, you know, it depends on uh, you know the, how the vehicle is buffeted and so on. Uh, and and here this this dose titration algorithm also has some tuning parameters that um, that will be adjusted as time goes on and this is provides the principle that allows you to continue learning about how to find the right dose continuously throughout the whole drug development process that dose titration algorithm may uh, you know may evolve uh, so that patient number 30 uh, gets treated with a more accurate maybe a a, a, a more accurate uh, dose titration algorithm that for example might achieve uh that might achieve uh a the final correct dose more quickly or perhaps more safely
0: okay okay but um, th- does clinical judgment come into play um in terms of t- deciding you know is this toxic enough or not toxic enough or you know uh what, where, where do we, uh, uh, you know, because you're, you're going to f- feed back to the, to the algorithm, who feeds back, right? There, is there a judgment right. component of, of a treating physician?
1: Yes, very much so. And in fact, you know, I describe it even in, even in this opening DTAT paper, you know, patients are going to be heterogeneous with respect to their pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics. But they're also heterogeneous with respect to their values uh, and their circumstances uh, and what they're looking for uh, from this phase one trial. Uh, mm-hmm. and here and here's where the uh, th- this oncology context comes into into play. You know, many phase one trials in other disease processes uh, are carried out actually in healthy volunteers, uh, right. but in oncology, because of the great toxicity of uh, of oncology drugs, uh, typically the phase one trial is uh, is performed in patients uh, on a therapeutic basis. So the aim of the phase one trial is actually therapeutic. Uh, mm-hmm. And, uh, but certainly you might enroll a patient who, uh, who uh, you know, at, at this stage, And typically this is, you know, patients enroll at a late stage in their treatment after other treatments have failed to, to help them or, are they, or their disease continues to progress uh, on the best available standard therapy. You know, perhaps a patient in that situation uh, has had enough uh, of the adverse effects, is willing to try something new, but not willing to push, um, uh, to push the dose high. Uh, right. Right. On the other hand, you know, and, and there's a lovely uh, a 1997 paper, I hope you'll link for, uh, for your
0: audience. Yeah, I'd be happy to.
1: Yeah, in which uh, uh, a uh, University of Chicago English professor uh, who was a, a, a phase one trial patient writes an essay uh, in which he um, advances his own view that he wants to be very aggressive uh, with the, the uh, intensification of his dose in his phase one trial. And wants some control over that dose. Okay. So uh, the heterogeneity of patients' values also uh, plays uh, um, also can be accommodated uh, within this setting in a way that it simply can't if you are assessing DLTs according to some uh, you know fixed protocol and and grading them one two three four
0: right okay. for sure. So I mean I understand now, but w- which means that your algorithm eventually is also uh, carried through into the clinic right i mean exactly once once patients once the drug is approved then the doctors prescribing it will also go through the same kind of um, dose finding protocol or titration protocol um, with the medications Uh, so how complicated is it for a a non-statistician you know a clinician Mm -hmm. to, to apply this protocol is it a plug and play or
1: well, so in order to, in, in, uh, attempts to achieve a precision dosing of drugs uh, have been, you know, have been frustrated for a long time. Uh, and uh, for, for many reasons. Uh, I think, you know, the, the, there's a tendency to, to like the idea that there's a single dose on the label, which you can memorize and write mm-hmm. down, mm-hmm. Uh, or that you can pick from a pick list on the, you know, dreaded EHR. but uh, achieving precision dosing is likely to require in, in general some kind of you know computational decision support uh, and uh, and uh, certainly uh, uh, with a drug that that could be as you know as highly toxic but also highly effective as a cancer drug uh, some some great care uh, and decision su- you know including you know maybe uh, technological decision support very much warranted uh, okay. Probably what we will need to do is replace the the dose on the label with the URL that links perhaps to right. the, I understand. the parameters of the dose titration
0: algorithm. Sure, but now another uh, perhaps another practical difficulty that comes to mind, that at least to me would be, uh, what about the the production of? Uh, so you have to have the the drug comes in small sizes that you can add, or di- you know different sizes instead of having one big pill. You know, yeah. I mean if you if you're you're uh, you know the dose you come up with at the end is going to be you know x uh, for one person and it's going to be y for another person and z and you have you know 25 different possibilities uh how do you manufacture that is is that a problem or not too much uh, oh, in so the n- end?
1: many Just- oncology drugs are are administered as infusions okay and of course you know they they're infinitely divisible
0: that's um, right that's right
1: Pache zeno right uh but uh this does actually bring up uh, uh, quite a hairy issue that i've only really begun to think about and that's this if you're going to do equitable dose individualization and if uh and if you know the, the optimal individual dose what i call the mtdi you know, with that little subscript i indicating we're talking about the maximum tolerated dose for this individual if that varies substantially across the population then equitably individualizing dose is going to require uh departing now from you know abandoning uh dollars per milligram dosing mm-hmm. uh, for for drugs and and something like a licensing uh procedure now seems to be uh necessary you know, as if you're now licensing the drug to the patient uh, in in much the way that we license software on a per seat basis
0: Right. I mean, I'm sure the. I, I can't imagine the solution to that problem being uh, that difficult. I mean, I, I see that it would be a departure from the traditional economics of how, how drugs are priced and, and, and sold in, in increments of milligrams and whatnot.
1: Uh-huh.
0: Um, but you're right. I mean, it's, that would be also part of the, <laughs> the, the revolution. I mean, you know, it, it's not that, you know, whatever you're doing, you know, obviously has ripple effects, uh, you know, yeah. throughout the whole the whole industry and and perhaps that's um, that makes it more challenging to uh, uh, to advance. But I think it's, I think it's terrific. Um, I'm still, I'm still trying to understand a little bit more from the clinician standpoint. I mean, let's say that now it's gone, you know, your method has been widely accepted, widely accepted, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, and now it's in the clinic and I'm an oncologist and and so there's a service that I can rely on. I have a patient in front of me with a certain cancer and I, I need to find out what's, what's the, the best dose. Then there's a consulting service that can uh, help me uh, you know, start you know, the, the process and identify the optimal dose for that given patient. Is, is that the idea? And, and we plug into... So the feedback would be not only the, the patient's uh, preferences as they go along with this uh, dose titration protocol, but also the variety or the diversity of of side effects as reported by me, the clinician to, to the consulting firm, right. Or to the consultant. I mean, you have to say, you know, we have, you have to weigh in a little bit different toxicities. I mean, if it's a toxicity that's, you, you know, is expected to be transient mm-hmm. and better tolerated as opposed to another one that seems to be more ominous or I don't know. I mean, it, there seems to be, it can get a little complicated, no, I imagine.
1: Yes. And here, here I would certainly hope actually that there, there wouldn't be a great deal of uh, uh, sort of outsourcing uh, to the consultant, as you say, Mm -hmm. Uh, but that what you would have, what you'd have delivered uh, in the form of decision support uh, to the treating oncologist uh, would be something that gave real insight uh, into the, the likelihood of a, of a, a, a each of several different types of uh, of you know major toxicities of the drug um, uh, that would that would accompany any given uh, dose increase, and that uh, and that, that insight uh, would feed the uh, uh, would inform the clinician uh, in what would be a you know a, a very uh, 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 deep conversation that the clinician is having with the patient. Uh, okay. and, and the, the aim I think you know ultimately um, would be to, to place as much sort of uh, power in the hands of the patient to make this decision as possible
0: if it takes um, how long does it take to uh, I mean do you have a guess or does it depend on how long does it, does it take four weeks or six weeks to identify the the ideal dose for the patient and if it takes long a long time is there a potential downside
1: yeah. yeah. so uh, it, it certainly, the 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 rate at which you know toxicities develop or and are seen uh, depends uh, on the, the drug, the class of drug, the particular drug within class that you're talking about, um, in in the DTAP paper uh, by way of uh, demonstrating a concrete application of this process. Uh, I, uh, I, I demonstrated how a dose titration uh, algorithm might work for docetaxel, which is this very widely used uh, chemotherapy agent. Um, and it, that's typically dose you know, every three weeks, let's say. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, uh, um, the, uh, the, the major dose limiting toxicity there is, is typically neutropenia, uh, which often develops within you know, a week or so, within 10 days. Which gives, you a time, which gives you a chance to give a dose, observe the neutropenia nadir, uh, help the patient recover, uh, and then by the time you're giving that next dose, you know how the patient responded to that first dose, so you've acquired some new information about the state variables of the system, uh, and, and you can, you know, you can na- take a guess at the, the next dose, uh, and, 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 a, and a better guess. After, and when it comes time to give the third dose, you've now been through two cycles and you've, you've approximated um, the the dose uh, and, and in that DTAT paper uh, which I think was you know probably a fairly good I, I used a model I built a model of neutropenia of uh, chemotherapy induced neutropenia that came right out of the literature uh, all the parameters came out of the literature and and in that model you over the course of two or three uh, at most four cycles you are reaching you know pretty close to the optimal uh, level okay uh, you know, but but this depends, you know, there are many, there are many drugs for which late toxicities develop.
2: So, David, what, what is the, um, I mean, it would seem like the only folks more interested than patients, if that's possible, um, in terms of getting the right dose, that's, that's effective, uh, would be pharmaceutical companies, right? Meaning why, 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 why are, what's the... Um, what is the resistance to finding, you know, every individual's, uh, you know, ideal dose?
1: Yeah. So when I when I hear, um, you know, uh, resistance articulated, uh, it's often in the form that uh, uh, that clinicians uh, are, are unlikely to be; uh, they can't be bothered to individualize dose. Uh, And that they and that the market demands a single dose Uh, and that the, you know, if I'm I'm talking with people on the uh, on the, you know, the clinical development side, um, their concern is that commercial, you know, capital C commercial Mm -hmm. uh, will um, will object to a, uh, you know, a drug which for which the label is planned to be a URL rather than a single, you know, rather than a single number.
0: Right, but in terms of uh, uh, even before that point, I mean, in the in terms of the clinical research aspect of things, um, a phase three trial, if it incorporated that information, I mean, presumably would be uh, to the advantage of the pharmaceutical company to have that kind of precision um, uh, for dosing, because then it w- would enhance the chance that more of the enrollees in the in the treatment arm would have, you know, a more effective dose. With, with, yes. Uh, that sort of thing. No, so so, what kind of feedback are you getting there?
1: So, one of the very first things I did after uh, rolling out the initial DETAC paper was to pursue a, a pharmacoeconomic argument along along exactly these lines, in which I compare uh, one-size-fits-all dosing against uh, individualized dosing, uh, under the assumption that that the op- individually optimal dose. Is distributed in some way in the population with a you know a coefficient of variation, uh, and uh, uh, you know a, a non-zero coefficient of variation. Uh, and as it, it, it turns out, that for what are probably quite uh, natural and reasonable uh, coefficients of variation, that uh, when you uh, when you uh, replace individually optimal doses with one size fits all dosing. Even if that's optimal one size fits all dosing, right? I'm not even talking about the kind of dosing that you get from the actual trials that we're doing now. Mm-hmm. Uh, you might lose something like half of the social value of the drug, which you know in theory translates into a loss of half of the profit. Right. Or right. at least half of the, the uh, at least half of the value of the drug.
2: You know? Yeah. Right. So I mean, it's it's such a competitive env- environment in, yeah. in in the pharmaceutical industry. It seems. It seems somewhat flabbergasting that there isn't some, some yeah, that, that that folks wouldn't at least try this in, you know, a variety of different places. I mean, it, it, and it's not just oncology, right? It's like this whole, uh, the, the fish oil, I don't know if you're following the fish oil Oh, gosh, saga. no. <laughs> you know, the fish oil saga has been that, you know, first fish oils are good because, you know, bears apparently live till they're 125. I made that up. Okay. Fish <laughs> oils are supposedly good because you know omega three fat sa- salmon, etc. And then, and then you know all these trials came out, and a lot of the RCTs were mm-hmm. were negative. And then, and then finally, the most recent trial uh, with four grams, which is the most amount of fish oil, pu- purified yokoso pen- pen- pentanoic acid, you know, these highly purified, four grams a day, that has done the trick, and now we're seeing cardiovascular event rate reduction. Right. So.
1: Uh.
2: But of course, there's been thousands and thousands of patients. I, I think in these trials, until finally somebody was like, "Well, I think it's you have to do four grams a day." You know, so I mean, I mean, you know, so break it down for us, dumb cardiologists, as you already as you have done a couple of times before. But would the ideal? I, I guess one. I guess I guess cancer is different, perhaps because you can see the, the some of the lethality or some of the side effects relatively. Um, relatively shortly, whereas, um, I mean, how, you know, how, how would you apply, yeah. you know, how would you apply this to just drug development in, in 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 general, in terms of, say, you know, take take fish oil as an example, like, you know, we, obviously these drug companies spent a lot of money uh, yeah. on negative trials, and now finally it seems like the four gram dose is what's working, but but maybe maybe there are patients where. 5 or 6 RAMs is what's needed to to work how, how, how would you know yeah. would you
1: I don't actually I don't actually necessarily think that um DTAC and dose individualization uh would um I don't think that they that these concepts uh engage so easily hmm. in a setting like this where you know probably you're talking about uh, relatively modest uh, yeah. Efficacy. You know, some of the, you know, some of the drugs that we're talking about here are are tremendously efficacious.
2: Mm.
1: Right? Uh, we're not doing the, the kind of population uh, medicine that uh, Michelle has uh, <laughs> railed against, dismantled so uh, so uh, violently. <laughs> uh, we you know, uh, so we're talking about drugs that are, you know, are at the same time, you know, uh, highly toxic but also highly effective, and it's where you have that intense balance that uh that i think uh a I principal engages and then also uh, i think you do have to, it, you can't really learn about the right dose any faster than the toxicities and the beneficial effects um uh, accrue
0: right that, that makes sense that makes sense so uh David I we touched a little bit on the uh, the patient side of things uh, but I heard you speak uh, you know on on uh, Raphael's program uh, recently there's th- there's definitely an ethical dimension to this problem that uh, you're hoping perhaps to uh, uh, I would say you know capitalize on but, but <laughs> at least, you know, so, uh, uh, right tell us about that I mean in what way yeah. this sort of um uh, what's the ethical dimension of this, uh, the current uh, state of affairs?
1: Yeah, so this has actually been one of the sort of interesting uh, surprises, interesting things to reflect back on about this process uh, is that uh, starting from, uh, you know, from this ethical motivation, uh, you know, starting from this shock that we're not individualizing the dose, and, and it's shocking because you know, one, one has an allegiance to the individual patient, uh, the beginning from that first principle uh, can be so fruitful, uh, and I, I hope that this is a lesson that you know, people will will uh, draw uh, draw generically from this work, uh, even you know, even after it you know sort of finds its way into practice. Um, the particular uh, there is a particular and ethical principle uh, that uh, that I, I discovered really about a year after the Detet paper, which gives um, I think special force. To uh, uh, you know, a special effective force to my argument, and here, here's what it is. You know, I described for you this process of a dose escalation trial. Uh, you decide you're going to you're going to you've got you know doses one through six, and you start uh, since this is a first-in-human trial, you start people on dose number one, and you you give that dose to a few people. You know, often it's three people, and if they don't have bad effects, then you decide you're going to escalate, which means you're going to try dose number two, dose mm-hmm. level two. And here's what's done. Typically, you, do, you give dose number two to a newly enrolled patient <coughs> in the trial. Uh, so this is a drug-naive patient, uh, and, and you're enrolling this patient at dose level two, whereas, let's say, the first three uh, patients in your trial are continuing on dose level one. I see. So That moment when you take a drug-naive patient and give dose level two, Right. While three individuals are still, you know, maybe languishing at a subtherapeutic dose level one, uh, that violates what the uh, concept I develop as what uh, precautionary coherence. You failed to take the necessary precaution, recognizing that, uh, that you know uh, that uh, uh, that uh, pharmacokinetics and dynamics are, are heterogeneous. Uh, what you ought to have done, of course, is to bump up one of those first three patients into dose level two while enrolling uh, the, the fourth patient at dose level one, because he or she is drug naive.
0: Right. I mean, I, I right. I mean, I, I suppose that's, that's, uh, certainly is one way of doing it, but, uh, no matter what, I mean, I think the, um, at least if I understand it correctly, currently the, the people at dose number one who keep, who stay there, um, Don't have any show and they may not know when they enroll and i mean they may know that they are the first ones but they may not understand fully the implication of what that means
1: this and and there's a there's a phrase that you often see if you when you read enough uh you see too often when you read enough phase one trial reports is the intra-patient dose escalation was not allowed I mean, there's, there's so much in that phrase there. I mean, first of all, instead of calling it titration, uh, they call it intrapatient dose escalation to make it sound, you know, uh, uh, you know, implausible. <laughs> right. Uh, and, uh, and, and yes, this is, this has been a, a longstanding, uh, problem in these trials. I, I, I heard a story from a, a patient advocate about, um, uh, about a, another patient who was in a lymphoma trial, uh, and uh, knew that she was on the first the lowest level dose and wanted to go up, uh, and lobbied for this um, you know, to the point of uh, taking a flight uh, to, to, to visit the, you know, the, the, uh, the principal investigator, uh, and, and was denied the opportunity to, uh, to increase her dose.. Uh,
0: because that would, of course, uh, throw off the 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 established protocol and and uh,
1: exactly right exactly. But there's really no uh, uh, there's really no uh, there's no excuse really for for not allowing a patient who's in a phase one trial. You know, in, 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 given the context that I, I described earlier, where you know these are supposed to have therapeutic intent, uh, there's it seems to me there's very there's, there's no excuse right and, and there's a
0: clear conflict of interest if on the one hand they there's a scientific aim even if uh, scientifically it may not be as you've described it's not it's not great because all it's at, at the end of that process all you get is you know a single dose for everybody yeah but if that's the aim then it's in conflict with uh, the the due attention to to the patient as, a, as an individual as a person right so exactly so so the consent process may be you know in a way botched by by that conflict of interest um, absolutely
1: and that was one of the that was sort of one of the surprising results of this of this conversation that I had um, about this uh, about this issue it, it it occurred to me you know and and this is now 10 months after writing the DTAT paper uh, uh, that it might be ethically impossible to consent a patient into a trial that um, violates this precautionary coherence principle. Uh, and th- that's been another one of the, uh, the, the wonderful surprises of, of, of doing this work is that uh, you know here I am, I think I've got the entire thing sorted out and solved from A to Z, right? And then I talk with a patient advocate and I realize that there's this entirely new dimension, uh, uh, this eth- new ethical dimension that had completely escaped my notice.
0: Right. And that's great. And that may be uh, your strongest weapon as far as I'm concerned. I mean, potentially. What do you think? I think so.
1: And, and, and you know, that's, that's uh, as, as I wrote in that uh, uh, THCB piece uh, a few months ago, um, that is actually the, uh, the tack that I'm taking now. Uh, I am, uh, you know, like you, a little frustrated. Oops, sorry about that. Uh, let me turn that off so that no doesn't happen again. Uh, let's see. All right, it's it's, it's not going to happen again. Um, uh, the, uh, uh, where was I? Oh,
0: Your yeah, right.
1: yeah, yeah, so I'm, yeah, I'm frustrated with, uh, uh, with the lack of uptake of, you know, what really is uh, a uh, open, open, shut case uh, made on, on multiple grounds. Um, uh, the, the kind of slowness of uptake has been uh, been disappointing, but I think, honestly, that uh, patients and patient advocates, uh, they're the ones with, you know, ultimately the, uh, the, ince- the, the greatest incentive uh, and also possibly the greatest power.
0: Correct, you know, I, I agree.
1: To change here. I mean, uh, the incentive I think is undeniable. Uh, but you know, where their power comes in, I think, is uh, in uh, in you know if if they're aware of this precautionary coherence principle, they're not going to want to enroll in the first cohort unless you know unless there's a clear indication that they can they can increase their dose as needed. Uh, and you know if if you can't enroll the first patient you can't run that
0: trial um i, I think i think you're on to something what um uh, have you had any uh, have you approached or is it too early still i mean sir either patient advocacy groups or uh, uh, you know uh professional societies or are they the professional societies i mean you know we've talked about them already on this show many times you know unfortunately yeah. you know frequently their uh, their interests uh, lie far away from um um from the patients they they profess to defend but nevertheless uh
1: yeah.
0: wh- where have you found the most positive response so far and and granted you know all you you know your work is, re- is is very new i mean if, if you say if you're saying 2016 or 2018 you know, barely two years of development for something that potentially threatens, you know, to change the whole way that, that things are doing, so.
1: Yeah, it, so it, it does, and I, we're completely tr- clear about that. It does make uh, a dramatic change. And, you know, it does undermine a lot of sort of, you know, narrow personal and professional agendas. Uh, I mean, frankly, the, you, 30 years worth of um, uh, innovation, in in dose finding methodology, uh, really disappears uh, as soon as uh, you decide to, to individualize dosing. I've, I've given some some you know, deep thought to how the existing you know, model based uh, dose finding methods uh, might be adapted to achieve dose individualization, and I think fundamentally it's it's just not possible, uh, and that uh, and that those methods have to be abandoned. And of course, that's you know that's not. Good news uh, for the, the people who've you know who built careers around those. Yeah. Uh, so uh, and um, uh, and you know as as we we've, we've discussed uh, there's a certain amount of inertia in um, uh, within corporations uh, that. You know, it's almost sort of eroded my my faith in capitalism, uh, <laughs> almost <laughs> as I've pursued this process. Uh, but yeah, I do you know I do attempt to uh, reach out now and engage with patient advocates. The uh, you know this Adonis uh, group, which I founded um, over uh, over a year ago now uh, at JSM uh, 2017. Uh, uh, has some uh, uh, committed and, and uh, engaged patient advocates on board uh, who've made you know, great contributions, um, and uh, I also you know, enjoy reaching out actually to the patient advocacy community on Twitter. It's been uh, uplifting actually to um, to to learn from them and engage with them, uh, and uh, you know you might have seen this public twitter list of the uh, so-called one-size fitsologists that i've put together
0: uh-huh. and,
1: uh, i've been able to recruit a, and so what i do is you know it's a list of the one-size fitsologists these one-size fits all dose-finding methodologists and i ask people to uh to uh, subscribe to the list by way of uh, you know registering a gentle protest <laughs> and uh well, a few patient advocates have actually joined and registered their protest as well i think that protest is, is uh, more powerful than than, you know, uh, even the protests that uh, some oncologists have, have read.
2: David, what 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 are the statisticians? Um, what has been their general uh, reception to this? So, uh, i I think you know I think
1: I've won over probably one biostatistician uh, uh, to uh, to this view, and that's that's rewarding. So it's not impossible, uh, but I think. And it's and it's 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 very strange, but I think that uh, that some aspects of this DTET methodology are sort of fundamentally opposed. Uh, they fundamentally rupture some prejudices that operate underneath biostatistics, uh, and these are prejudices that prevent biostatistics from uh, uh, from really achieving uh, uh, the individualization of of all kinds of care uh, the uh, uh you know so i'll tell you a story uh, just a, a couple of years back i was uh, on a uh, an fda webinar uh that was about uh companion diagnostics uh, you know these are the tests that that, are, that accompany drugs and and help to you know uh, um uh Help with you know precision dosing, for example, and the, the comment here was as I was you know pressing a point was that oh come on now uh, you know Dr. Norris the uh, in the real world we all know that um, precision medicine is not about the individual patient so there, there's a you know there's a fundamental uh, there's a fundamental uh, inability to uh, uh, you know, to, to reach out to the, to the individual because of this uh, presumption that what we, that we need a large number of data points. To right. Learn.
0: I, I can certainly, uh, you know, I mean, in a way it's correct that the phrase precision medicine for the most part refers to this, you know, huge data mining, <laughs> you know, yeah. that have nothing to do with, uh, with actually actual, uh, individualization of care. Uh, and I can see why, you know, much of the, uh, statistical community is sort of, uh, uh, comfortable well, mm-hmm. with this, uh, you know, big data mining approach.
2: Um, yeah, but again, it would seem like you know David is providing some type of a framework for this. He's not. He's not. You know, going, this is not like intuition or. You know, he's providing an algorithm and a and, a, and kind of a frame. Uh, you know, whatever a, a statistical framework, which you know should make them comfortable. So again, what yeah, sure, what yeah. do they? Can you can you clarify what the most? I mean, I mean, you, you seem to be saying multiple times that it's yeah. inertia um, that, yeah. that, that. Is there any 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 other substantive point? Uh, uh, the the n, uh, n of one. Uh, how is this different um, uh, from the this n of one trial that I, that I keep uh, hearing about? Oh
1: so so the the N of one trial really is uh, it embodies the principle that I'm trying to address. Right. Right. You need, you need some kind of N greater than one, right. In order to learn something. Right. Um, But, uh, uh, you know, biostatistics in particular uh, I think tends to neglect time series statistics. My my sense is that it it may actually be a kind of neglected element of the biostatistics curriculum uh, so that the time dimension that, uh, that, contains this recursive process that we've that I've talked about of giving a dose, waiting to see the result, giving another dose, all happening within an N equals one patient, but over multiple time periods, uh, that process and the opportunities that it presents uh, tend to be uh, 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 overlooked. Uh, so uh, definitely to the extent that um, that biostatistics can take on the any the, 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 uh, of one trial uh, and, um, and, and make that the operative principle here I, I mean i think that that's that provides a hook there's there's it's by no means you know, DTED is by no means inaccessible to the biostatistician um, i don't think any biostatistician who's taken a graduate level time series course will have encountered the column filter will have encountered recursive filtering and and has on board all of the you know, technical uh, underpinnings, uh, you know, all the uh, the uh, the technical machinery uh, to appreciate uh, the D-T principle. Uh, but you know, you you keep pressing me, uh, and I probably should just say that you know I've tried very hard actually to elicit a, a response. Uh, you know, I, I'm you know quite vigorous in my criticism of these one size fits but they um, they really you know uh, they won't be pinned down, and then they and they really won't. Um, there's not much that they can say, and so there's not much that they do say, frankly.
0: Right, right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm not surprised. Sure. Have you, um, you know who wrote uh, in favor of um, uh, N equal one studies uh, a while back? Um, it's uh, Dr. Eric Topol. I don't know if you, you were aware of that. And, uh, you know, I've got and an N equal one. You should uh, uh, press him on that, you know. Go back, <laughs> ask him if he's uh, really serious about, uh, you know, because he certainly is very influential.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's you know, that's a great idea. I have an n equals one, uh, or an nf one uh, library in my Zotero, you know, enormous Zotero library. I should check if his paper's in there.
0: If it's not, right, I, I think I have it in my my library. I'll I'll uh, I'll give you the reference, and then you get okay, great. Back love back it. him.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know. Uh, the more sort of in, influential people, you know, like Raphael and and uh, and others, uh, who you know back this, uh, the better. Uh, I, I know, you know, at least one one person at FDA who has taken a liking to this idea. So it's right. not, you know, it's not a it's not an idea that offends everyone, uh, and it's it's an idea with some uh, with some openings.
0: Correct, and and I think you know clearly, uh, as I said, I, you shouldn't. Um... I think it should be very hopeful and it's still very early in the, in the stage of development of an idea, you know, so, so to speak. And, uh, yeah, that's so true. I, uh, I'm, I'm very encouraged. I, I think it's fascinating. I, I'm hoping that our podcast is, uh, you know, can do uh, play a little part in, uh, spreading this, uh, good idea. And, uh, and you know, I, I wish you very well. Do you have any, any other final, uh, uh, things you wanted to, to share with the audience? Um,
1: Oh gosh well I, so I'm I'm so, so thankful that uh that uh, you and Isha have uh you know put me on your program it's a real uh, honor actually <laughs> given the other guests that you've had uh, you, you put together a, just a fantastic podcast here in, in just a, f- a few short months it's it's uh, so it's a delight to join the uh the annals of the uh, atheon <laughs> <to> <laughs> but yeah if I have a final thought you know I would actually I'd ask people to uh you know to to uh to join, uh, to join me, visit my my Patreon site. Actually, it's patreon.com forward slash D-T-A-T. Oh.
0: We'll have that on the show notes. All
1: right, great. That will be great. And, and your, you
0: know, your Twitter handle?
1: Uh, the Twitter handle is uh, David C. Norris MD.
0: Very good. And do you have a website or, or besides the Patreon? I mean, that's, that's pretty much... Uh...
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm really posting everything on the, on the Patreon. And, you know, okay. nearly all of them, the content is... Uh, it's, in fact, all of the content is free. Uh, the, you know, the, the, the patronage concept here is really about actually demonstrating to the one size fits that there is a growing army of resistance.
0: <laughs> very good, David. We wish you very well. It's been a pleasure to hear about it and, and to chat with you.
1: Oh, Thank you so much, Michel. Thank you,
0: Anish. Thanks for listening to the Akkad and Coca Report. Subscribe for free on iTunes or Stitcher at Akkadnkoka.com, where you'll find detailed show notes, our blog, and more. Akkadandkoka.com